0: In the world of geopolitics, there are those that decide and those that recommend. While it is debatable who wields more actual power, it is clear that the number of advisors, consultants, analysts, strategists, and self-appointed experts clearly outweighs that of the policymakers. Peter Zihon, a unique blend of the recommender class, has made a mark recently in business circles for a sweeping forecast concerning broad-reaching topics such as energy, supply chains, military strategy, and the devolution of the globalist world order. Tonight, after we catch up on some Halloween discourse, we speculate as to the motivations of Mr. Zihon, as well as the implications of what he and his backers seem to see as the transformation of American leadership as the trade and security arrangements of the post war era break down. Well, I'm not a crook. I burn everything I've got. we industrial
1: We are here to destroy the control of the industrial other people.
2: I did not trade
3: arms for hostage. it I- <laughs> <laughs> The full response to the relationship is the fact that in
0: Hello and welcome to Halloween.
4: Are you feeling the energy? Are you feeling scared? Are you feeling that that demon presence yet, guys? I'm feeling it.
0: Um, my tires are feeling it because I'm sinking right now. There's a lot of mud where I live.
4: You know what's not really fun is trick-or-treating in the mud. You ever done that, like trick-or-treating no. on... Like um, a really dirty or like dingy night, you know, uh, that's not fun.
0: The uh, the best Halloween memory, oddly enough, was uh, a Garfield and Friends special that was broadcast uh, as a Halloween episode. Um, and they had way more fun than my trick-or-treating. But they basically, they, they there was a rumor, I think, that Garfield found out uh, that there was like uh, going to be really really good treats given out on an island it it makes no sense in retrospect but anyway they get in a boat and uh him and odie paddle out there and then i think odie like drops all the paddles um as sort of the gag and then they they drift to somewhere else and it's haunted of course and there's um there's buried treasure and they just so just so happened to stumble upon it and there it's a map and everything and all the all the sort of tropes of pirate pirate stuff and the difference though is that the uh the pirates aren't alive at this point but they're ghosts and so the pirates start showing up out of the fog and as a kid it was pretty pretty scary i do remember that well there were treats there I don't remember about the treats. I think they get back alive. I think that was the treat. I don't. I don't think. I think Garfield is very disappointed. He didn't get any candy. But the the lead to the show is he was super excited about how he loves Halloween, how uh, he steals all the candy from John, his uh, owner slash sugar daddy, basically <laughs> the guy that buys him all the food, um, and then they they go on their adventure.
4: You know, it's been kind of an interesting year for, uh, for Halloween, uh, every day is becoming like Halloween in a sense, uh, there's uh, record high reporting of, you know, paranormal or supernatural activity and exorcisms are still at a record high and, um, you know, see reports all the time of, People complaining that uh, they've never seen it so bad, and of course you have the um, the constant UFO reporting, which is you know at, at uh, ep- epidemic levels now. It's you know reached something like the sort of the zeitgeist in the '50s um, at this point, and people are are so on edge and uh, sort of spooked to say the least. There's even been uh, you know sort of a general uh adopting of the the spooky ghost sort of uh uh pastiche or aesthetic I don't know what to call it by a lot of these uh, strange uh very 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 strange sort of um uh, sort of american like regime apologist types this is mostly like an an internet thing um but it well, definitely,
1: spooks are on the loose. Yeah,
4: they, they've they've yeah, they've they really adopted it. I mean, you do see it kind of pop up in real life in Ukraine, for example, with some of these you know more um, bizarre uh, private military groups that have sort of popped up on the radar, like uh, the Fog or the Ford Operating Group, but uh, Ford Observation Group, actually, I think is their technical title. Um, but it's been a it's been a banner year for spookiness, uh, and and every day is like Halloween. I mean, you know, uh, I think Nick pointed out um, something that was very spooky recently was uh, there's an Indiana court that would they do fine or threaten to jail parents for not uh, affirming their child's gender gender care gender identity gender care or something like that. Nick, you were the one that brought this up to us before we... Uh, oh, I think they took show. the kids away. I, I oh, saw they took that the kids boring. away, yeah. Yeah. It's been, you know, in a lot of ways, it's been the year of, of the drag queen party. This is like a, a social phenomenon that's been developing for years. And uh, I feel like this year, it it's just it's become so ubiquitous every, especially over the summer, it felt like every major city in America had uh, a drag queen party where children were invited. Um, you know, and this is, this is
1: American cities are also full of spooks,
4: right? I mean, this is the, the pastime of sort of, uh, mentally addled suburban mom types, uh, who are now sort of taking their children to these uh, the, these uh, very strange uh, shows for, uh, I don't even know, what, to, what, what is it? It's for uh, social accolades, it's for social points to an extent. But what is the point of Halloween, I think is what I would like to ask you guys at the stage, you know, if, uh, if dressing up and pretending is so much a part of of day-to-day life in america now doesn't it kind of cheapen the sort of the um the fun and the mystique of the one day a year where you kind of pretend to be someone else you you know you, you act a little out of sorts or you're a little outlandish if every day is encouraged to be like that you know what is what is even the sort of the the point of halloween anymore other than what it's become, which is sort of an excuse to go get like insanely drunk.
0: I'm going to push back a little bit here. I think you're you're sort of describing the urban scene in America where typically the, the unattached younger people live. And yes, what you just said is what they do. But in the suburbs and the rural areas, I don't see that. And I, I think it's less of what you're describing. It's really more about, okay, Halloween is when, uh, you bring your kids around to have a little yeah. bit of fun. But I think those people, the adult ones, at least, uh, don't have time for this. I mean, at least to the degree you're talking about. Right. Now, Is it more than in the past? Probably. I actually wanted to ask you guys what you think about people, um, women particularly, but like putting, putting color in their hair, not just like, blonde, brunette or red, but like purple and blue, like unnatural colors. I've been seeing this a lot. It's not like this is like something that has never happened before, but it seems to be really, really common uh these days. That's the thing that I've seen as a trend.
4: I would agree with you. I've seen it um it's I mean it's ubiquitous. Uh I see it all of the and you know the style I see a lot is um is highlighting. And it's kind of an inverse of uh, like. Remember in like the early aughts, like early two thousands, there was a big trend um, to do kind of like the weird uh,
0: frosted tips.
4: Yeah, frosted tips, but also um, like you know, like light highlighting in, like only like two or three sections of your hair, particularly for women. Yeah, you know they. Yeah, yeah. So it's basically the inverse of that. It, instead of going full blue hair or full purple hair, mm. I see I see like, you know, the bangs might be uh, purple. Or they might have sort of like the, the hair underneath their top layer in the back will be colored purple. So in like when women yeah. put their hair up in a bun, they have like a, the underside of it when they turn around is purple.
0: I mean, do you guys think it's attractive on anybody?
4: No, it's it it's, it's just, it looks so bad. <laughs>
0: yeah, I agree. It's so
4: it's so jarring.
0: They look like clowns. I mean, it, it's, it's stupid so, looking. Yeah, it's really dumb. It's so. Uh, well,
4: they use like neon colors. You know, it's it's like
0: green. It, yeah, it, it purple, looks like they're going blue. to a party, and then that's going to be a temporary color. But it turns out they're looking like yeah. that at the office, and I'm like, I, I don't quite understand what you're. What you think the impression you're giving people? It's like, do you do you think you're coming across as professional and responsible, and you want to advance your career with this choice, or it's just uh, you work a really go nowhere job, and so it doesn't matter. I mean, that sadly, I think it's a lot of the the latter. But um, I just don't get it. I mean, I get women like you know follow trends all the time, but it's I've never met a guy who's like, oh yeah, that's she looks really great because she dyed her hair green <laughs> you know it's, it's it's kind of ridiculous
4: well now you see it like you said in the workplace you see in the professional environments you'll see women wearing pantsuits or sort of work dresses with purple strands in their hair mm-hmm. i mean it's, it's very jarring you know you, you would have you would think like if you took that image and you brought it back 10 years, 12 years, 14 years, people would think, you know, this is like a hipster or someone doing like an ironic photo shoot. But now it's a very commonplace. Uh, you know, I'm not sure when the, like the – I guess the, the fashion trend really changed maybe right before COVID. I feel like I, start, I was seeing it very often in the office, you know, that sort of um, – clash where you had a very strange hairstyles and and coloring of hair uh alongside sort of professional business desire uh and nobody was saying you know and everybody was sort of expected to not even comment on it you know what i mean like you you don't even want to bring it up it it just sort of it just happens one day and you accept it you know it, it is it's distracting and it's it's um it's weird. I mean, I remember in school as a, as a kid, you know, there were arguments, uh, and, and I'm not that old, uh, that were made against um, not only like coloring your kid's hair, but even just flash, even just clothing with like a shirt with too much writing on it. Because the, the idea was that it was literally distracting, like, you know, it's, it's, you know, it's distracting to have so much visual stimulation when um, you're supposed to be concentrating on something. Uh, and, and you know now <laughs> well you, not, now you look at like yeah. what a lot of these these like these zoomers in wear. the spirit
1: of the uh, holiday to play the devil's advocate I have to ask how is it that a woman in a position of authority <clears throat> is supposed to dress and present themselves so as not to appear ridiculous
4: that's a good question I'm a big fan of uh, of the. Uh...
1: I mean, I think the, the correct the dressing up like in the Mao suit, I think, was uh, used to be accepted as a sort of the the standard of seriousness for for women as political. Leaders.
4: Well, yeah, that was like, that was Hillary Clinton's uh, fashion sense it was dressing up with her, her chairman, Mao, Moo or whatever that was.
0: Yeah. Uh, the, the Democrats just, like to wear scarves a lot. Well, uh, the, I, the uh, Democrat, apparently yeah, they, I'm the only like, person so that's like, noticed this, but it's, it's definitely a thing.
4: They like scarves and pantsuits mm-hmm. and they, what they particularly like are pantsuits, uh, normally with a white shirt, in either dark navy blue or brown uh, jacket and pants. Uh, these are like their only colors. They don't have <laughs> they don't have any other interesting color schemes. It, it's it's almost always those two. Occasionally, we'll see them wear like dresses. Uh, you know, like I'm a, I'm a big big fan of. I have a huge crush on uh, Kristen Cinema. Just because she's the only like moderately attractive uh, female, probably in in the entire Congress.
0: Uh, Democrat, and, I can't remember.
4: Yeah, yeah, I think she's from she's from Arizona, yeah. and um, she's the one who was like who's like a sex freak or <laughs> or something like that, and uh, she wears these like low cut tops and. She has like her cleavage sticking out and, you know, it's like it, it, that's at least fun, you know, wear some you kind know, of like colorful dresses and how, show, off, how show off your figure. Power cleavage.
0: What was that? You said power cleavage. Um,
1: yeah, power cleavage. Yeah. <laughs> I wonder how – Catherine the Great was known for a pretty ridiculous uh, dress <laughs> She was also known for you know making no secret out of her what do you call them uh, a male harem
0: uh no uh, that's not quite um yeah uh i th- this has existed but there was that story that came out a couple years ago about the uh the really overweight woman with the four boyfriends living with her in the house and then she got pregnant by one of them, but it wasn't clear who the Mm. father was. And then one of the guys ended up fighting another, (laughs) another one of them. And maybe it was all like neck beards and really, you're not surprised that these guys are doing this, but But I Um, think
4: that those are two separate things. But there was like a term, and I don't remember. It was a polycule, right? Yeah. Call that a polycule. Polyamory,
0: yeah. That's probably what it was. But I think
4: that what what Catherine the Great had was not a poly polycule. She just had a bunch of like, you know, like top breeding stock from around Eurasia. You know, like chained up in a uh, in a dungeon for sex or whatever. Like that whole situation was gigolos. Yeah, that's what Did, she, say, did she have children no.
0: with them, or just for her? No, convenience no, it was purely yeah. for amusement. Good lord. Um,
1: <laughs> well, speaking of uh, clothing, what do you guys think about the the three piece suit? Do you think this is something that's going to for men stick around? Do you take it seriously? Because you have your great. Yeah, I mean,
0: uh, no, I don't. The, I think it's an affectation.
1: The Jew uh, dictator of Ukraine, Zelensky, is on all of these the Western fashion magazines and stuff in his fucking green T-shirt that he has. Like a that a is them, so like a, unbelievable that like, hey, hey, he thinks
0: he is portraying himself as a courageous figure by not putting on something more than a friggin' T-shirt. I'd never understood you know,
4: well, that. Well, there is. There is something really really insightful there in that the aesthetics of ukrainian leadership are ironically extremely soviet in their sort of utilitarianism their um their drab color schemes their hmm. their, their sort of brutal demeanor um these guys I, wear I, I don't know. Whole, whole I mean the other politicians guys, they wear suits. The you
0: know, I'm not sure no, not who you're really. looking the, at. These
4: guys all wear the entire Ukrainian leadership wears the same fatigues and t-shirts and sort okay. of uh, you know dark green quarter zips um, every day. They all wear cargo pants. They have these same coordinated outfits. Hmm. And you know, it's it's just bizarre. They it, it is very it feels very Soviet, you know, it feels like sort of the Soviet leadership of the nineteen twenties, you know, wearing like again, green fatigues and and car, you know, cargo pants and overalls to you know, to like official functions. Uh, I mean these people all
1: live. I've never seen Katarov wear a suit, but I have seen him wear
4: a track a track suit. <laughs> Yeah, but Chechens have that own, have their own like just like a lot of Middle Easterners. They don't. They have. I can't remember what the name of it is. They have formal attire. It's akin to a suit, but it's not a suit. But they do have formal attire, and he will wear it. It's. They basically have. Yeah, it's what he wears to the mosque. Yeah, they have a very tight shirt, a tight jacket that zips that buttons all the way up to their um, to their Adam's apple, and they wear it without a tie. And then they don't have an outer jacket on top of that generally. So imagine like a dress shirt and a jacket combined into one that goes all the way that you button very tightly with no collar all the way up to your Adam's apple, along with like nice slacks and nice shoes. This is like the formal attire for a lot of like particularly like Caucasian Muslims in, uh, in that area. Uh, and I think a lot of Turks wear it too. So they do have formal attire. Like you just you look at the Ukrainian leadership and they're just they wear these ridiculous clothes. These people are all uh, you know multimillionaires living in you know elaborate bunkers or they live in a you know, mansion in Poland and they occasionally get together in front of a green screen like green screen wearing t-shirts and, <laughs> and fatigues and they project this like very stalwart um, harsh image of of life every time they're they're sort of publicly available even you know despite how bad so one point. In, well despite how bad things get in like in, in Russia you know you will you'll continue to see sort of the flashy high quality suits and the nice watches and so forth out of the leadership and, you know in that sense like the Russian leadership is much more modern and, and liberal than, than
0: what had the Ukrainians. I mean, he might or, describe them as more Ukrainian. conservative, actually, if they're wearing.
4: Sure. Yeah.
0: Clothing like that. Um. There's not a lot to say about what's going on there. I, you, I don't you know mean. You could me. also
4: say that that the Russian leadership is just thoroughly
0: Westernized, With.
4: and that they, they they prefer to wear you know expensive Swiss watches and nice suits. You know, they, they this is the like their chosen sort of formal attire now. They—they they didn't come up with anything uh, unique. There's 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 a lot to there's a lot of interesting things to interpret from sort of how these uh, these cultures present themselves uh, hmm. to them to their own people and to into the rest of the world.
0: Well, Nick, Nick, I think had something to say, and then maybe we could get to our main topic after that.
1: yeah so i remember listening to an interview with charles murray the author of the bell curve Mm
3: -hmm.
1: and he wrote this book uh if memory serves it was something like the Crummudgeon's guide to i don't know getting ahead or success or life or whatever (laughs) and in it he gives like his very conservative advice that I thought was very funny, uh, especially in light of what we're talking about, which is that he, he gives you the very, like, h- how to present yourself, like, how, how like, serious people present themselves, you know, no tattoos, like, clean shaven, uh, three-piece suit, whatever, like, these are, like, hard rules for him. And I just want to say to Charles Murray, it's like, what what world are you living in, guy? <laughs> it's,
0: 1977.
1: It's just such a delusional conservative premise. Yeah, it, it's like these people always operate from a a place of of delusion when they decry that the the standards are gone and like people are people are slobs or you got like blue hairs in positions of power. But it's like, wait, what did you just say? Like blue hairs in positions of power. Oh, so it actually doesn't matter. You just think it does. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think the three-piece suit, all, all, all that stuff. It, I think it's gone. I mean, fashions have changed over the years. I don't know the specific history. I, I guess it's probably an Anglo-Masonic thing. Uh, as for the the necktie and all of that, uh, it was just a, a form of what used to be the world power, and obviously. The people who do run the world don't want everyone like dressing up in black robes and uh, headcaps or whatever to just show that there's <laughs> to show where they stand. So uh, I guess that in the suit, you know, you see it's still in Asia, but I'm I am kind of waiting for if it's true that you start to see a breakdown and a rise of a new Eastern Eurasian bloc. If the people who've been saying that are correct. It'll be interesting to see when these foreign Asiatic heads of state and uh, and
0: whatnot discard the Western desire. Yeah. 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 That will be
1: interesting. That'll be interesting. And I I think that maybe is the best I can do for for a segue into our topic. Mm -hmm. Because that shows maybe where my mind is at, considering what we're going to discuss. So, Adam, would, would you like to introduce it?
0: Well, I'd just like to say, hey, everybody, Peter Zahan here. Uh, If you watch his videos, like I think all of us have, um, he always kind of starts off like that. Um, He's a a geopolitical strategic advisor and analyst. Uh, He hailed from Stratfor and the State Department at one point. Uh, his uh, his background before that is a little bit murky, other than he hails from Iowa. But uh, Peter Zihan or Zaihan, uh is a really good speaker. He gets invited to a lot of places, and he does YouTube um, sort of shorts as well on his own channel. But he's written four books. Uh, I've gone through pretty much all of them, and the themes are pretty consistent. So once you've read one Zihan, you've Kind of read them all. But if I could summarize, and then we can get into more detail. Mr. Zaihan is very pro-globalization. However, he recognizes that it's not trending that way. And he sees an era of deglobalization. However, he also would say that America's role in globalization was fundamental in making it happen, which I agree with Uh, and predominantly it was, and I think this is sort of getting to like his insights that I haven't heard elsewhere that much. Uh, He said the way America went about creating what today we consider the global economy uh, was never done before. And I think he's fairly accurate in stating that, in that instead of forcing colonies of the American empire if we're going to use that concept to buy manufactured goods from America and then America imports raw materials from them. America basically said, you guys can trade with each other however much you want. All we're going to do is require you to allow us to basically control the uh, the sea lanes and the airspace. And we're going to create a security umbrella that will eliminate the risk of piracy and countries uh, imposing themselves upon free trade. And he, I think accurately describes the Bretton Woods post era as after world war II, the United States became kind of the gold standard slash currency standard of the world. And this was the regime that it, it kind of created as opposed to the empires of yesteryear where france or england or spain whoever would impose this mercantilism that was not the american system at post-world war ii uh he sees it breaking down he sees america's role still being uh, quite uh important however less uh global but he he sees the prospects for america actually being quite good which is interesting i think we'd like I'd like to get into his theories on that, but I think that sums up his thing. He's kind of just repeated this stuff a lot. He talks a lot about maps. Um, He he calls it the maps and math crowd. Uh, He's again from a think tank, which is, got pretty strong ties to the security establishment in Washington, the Stratfor. And so this is kind of the language he speaks, but he talks about geology, minerals, and uh, energy, things like that, that are are more physical in nature. Um, He does get into a little bit of sort of high tech stuff, but it's, I think, more coming from the understanding that he has of supply chains minerals again, natural resources, things like that as it pertains to national wealth and national security. So that's kind of him in a nutshell from how I see it.
1: Adam, would you consider yourself to be a Zionist? <laughs>
0: <laughs> um I suppose I, I would call myself a Zionist um versus uh a anti Zionist. Um, but I don't agree with everything. I would just say I lean more uh on his I, side of the fence than not.
1: I waited for your introduction uh, in order to make that joke. I was
0: thinking I'd <laughs> uh, start with it, but I'll you go first. I liked it. I liked it.
1: I also I read his most recent book. Um, so I want to say a few things about me why we're talking about this because you know it, obviously the listener would think like why Why are you talking about this Zog shill and that's a good question uh, I read his recent book and I've seen a number of his interviews uh, he says a lot of the same things in them and I, I get the impression that yeah there's no real reason to Read all of his books when they're. I think the most recent one is probably his most fully formed. Uh, and he, yeah, he's basically a Gen X, uh, Zogmill-connected spook of some kind. I mean, uh, the strat for if I remember correctly, was one. Of, it was more of the kind of Bush faction of the CIA.
0: He's basically that. admitted that which his kind of, favorite he, favorite he president was George H. W. Bush, which is a very interesting pick because it's not very common. But if you yeah. understand the frame That's of an, that, it explains him perfectly because everything he talks about is pretty much what Bush one wanted or Bush two, whatever the hell he is, but you know, H. W. And
1: and in his book, he refers to the the um, American hegemony following the defeat of Europe uh, in a shorthand in his, in his, what is the book I'm referring to Adam? It's like uh, the end of globalization.
0: Well there's it's four it's the, most recent book the, there's four, uh, the end of the, the world probably uh, the, his first one was accidental superpower after yeah, that it was that, absent that. superpower Anyways, then it was disunited nations Then I think the latest is uh, the end of the world something like that
1: yeah in that book, he refers to American hegemony as the Order. That's the shorthand, is the Order. Uh, I don't really yeah. know yeah. Like, who exactly this guy works for or anything. He, he, he straddles and uh, he's worked. To, the one reason I can say it's worth discussing this is because he's breaking the mold a little bit in terms of Zog talking heads in that he's saying some things that people don't want to hear, but he's also doing it in a way where he's somebody who's clearly gotten very far flattering his audiences, whomever he's speaking to. If it's like Pentagon people or finance people or whatever, Um, we can get into some of the specifics of his claims, but it is interesting that an American figure is taking something resembling a pessimistic view but it's it goes both ways, because on the one hand, it is it is a far cry from PNAC, but it's not that far of a cry from PNAC. Because on the one hand, he says that the American global order is going to collapse uh, and the there'll be very various consequences for this, uh, especially for countries that don't really matter, etc., but at the other end, it's also he's very bullish on a sort of an, another American century of some kind because of the, uh, the North American continent itself and what that offers in terms of uh, energy and food and these the types. And, and,
0: and I, I should have mentioned demographics. Have the yeah, theme, he talks a lot so. about demographics, populations, and everything. Sort yeah. of.
1: It's, the population pyramid in particular. Uh, he's, yeah, it's very technocratic, and it's it eschews a lot of. He's kind of cagey about where he. He describes himself, for example, uh, as an internationalist and as a Democrat, like democracy guy, not DNC, but small d democrat and internationalist is how he describes himself in the epilogue of the the book that i read uh but he mostly focuses on things from a technocrat sort of viewpoint
0: well he he really is like the quintessential deep state uh, operator because he doesn't really openly affiliate with any party he's smarter than that in in my estimation that he's his his career is based upon his ability to move between all these different groups anywhere in the world and so he's not going to really pick a camp per se other than maybe the west versus like the east that's probably the biggest distinction he's ever made but um he's not as concerned yeah. with the parties as you know one He's might notably expect yeah, his hostilities are very much the same
1: hostilities that Zog itself has. I mean, it, he's very uh, hostile and like comically bearish on China and uh, also very hostile to Russia. Um, no doubt about those things.
4: Well, it's interesting he he is um, I wouldn't say hostile, but deeply, uh, invested in uh, the demise of Europe as a major political player. And that most of the European nations will cease to have any meaningful, uh, you know, larger political or economic power as the century progresses. He's been touting that idea for years. And, and you know, he's often looked at demographics as uh, one of the prime reasons of that, although, you know, it's interesting on the demographic question, for example, he would never necessarily discuss the particulars of the demographic problems. He looks at it, you know, in in purely nominal terms, you know, purely that, you know, we have these age brackets, they're all growing at these rates. This, This is what the overall population growth is projected at. Therefore, the country may or may not be in decline. He won't look at, for example, the you know, let's say median IQ. Oh, of course not. Or, or, or. I I think he's aware of it. Well, well, hold on. Yeah, 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 yeah. yes. He won't look. He won't look at diseases. He won't look at um, cultural differences he won't look at assimilation issues, he won't look at disparities. And so there's a lot of elements that are that you do need, even from a technocratic approach to take into account, talking about demographics, that he won't. um, And I don't know if he won't in his sort of public facing services, his public facing promotional services, or, or his books, because he doesn't seek to offend anybody. And it's possible that you know, he allegedly, you know, he does run this company that provides private intelligence services, private consultancy services, um, and who knows what he's actually delivering to clients. You know, if, if he's prompted to give a adequate um, uh, study, for example, well, uh, you know, a simple – hold on, let me finish. If he's asked, for example, to give uh, a study of assimilationist issues – In the southwestern corridor of Arizona, maybe he would talk about that. You know that yes, there's a demographic boom in Arizona, and it does look like it has a bright future. But there are some real problems here. Uh, From a linguistic front, a cultural front, you know we're having massive drop in median IQ. We're having you know assimilationist issues. Maybe he, he would deliver that in private. My larger point is that. Um, he'll talk about issues on sort of a, a very face level. He'll never truly dive into the particulars of anything. Um, and I think that part of that is maybe his appeal, why he's so he has such broad-based appeal, um, because he doesn't delve into the weeds. You know, he can give you a cohesive, hierarchical, overall, connective view of ge- geopolitics of any given country or industry or region or or idea or ideology you know anything he can basically give you the basics of it um, and he can maybe then interweave the basics of that one thing with another thing and present to you larger ideas or larger cases uh, but he'll never dive in any particular so you know if you on another topic if you ask him to get into particulars of why exactly The Europeans are seeing a massive destruction of their of their industrial capability. He would he would say, well, you know, the reason is that the Europeans made the wrong strategic bets. The flip side of that is that the Europeans made the wrong strategic bets because the United States and other powers have made it a geopolitical priority on their front to make their strategic investments into mistakes. He would never necessarily take that point of view that America or others are have a national strategy to undermine European industry, for example. So it, often, you know, what you won't see in a lot of his work is attrib- attributions of maliciousness or that You know, there's a lot more complexity to international politics. Yes, and and it's not just on the American. front. Absolutely, he generally agree. won't get into that. So it, it is all very surface level. Um, yeah, you know for um, it, it, and the way that he t-
1: talks about Nate he it's we could dive in a little bit into the weeds on globalization it's just uh, the concept itself l-
0: let me make a quick point because
1: nick he when he referred
0: sorry so okay, go ahead, just I- just to respond to what Hans was saying about the uh, iq aspects He's aware, but the way he frames it is he'll say things like, uh, we do high tech, they do low tech, Mexico does medium tech. And he'll sort of say things like skilled versus unskilled labor. It's basically corporate language, but it's clear that he gets it. Like you don't do rocket engineering in Algeria or something. I mean, he he wouldn't. Uh-huh. He would never propose it. He would never say it that way. Like, but he's polished. He's very polished in his presentation. So, so
4: you you think that you think that he he's presenting a very polished but more Yeah, but I, he, he rack, knows rack, what's going on. on.
0: Yeah. He, he's just he's just not wanting to offend his audience, which is what you have I to mean, do I, if you're going to be, be willing... that high profile.
1: No, it's it's yeah. because the geography of the Congo doesn't lend itself to
4: rocket engineering. Right, you have I to understand. Willing, It's I about geography be to believe that, and like I said, in private with his consultancy service, he would give you probably a much more realistic view i mean if you're paying like if you pay this guy tens of thousands hundreds of thousands of dollars i don't know what his fee is i i want to report on the market conditions for the growth of certain industries in the southwestern corridor of arizona he could probably tell you like listen the area is going to grow in population threefold over the next four decades they're also going to be like really dumb <laughs> Like it's going to, you know, what you're going to be able to do there is mostly low cost manufacturing. Be, you're basically going to take those industries from Mexico because enough Mexicans have moved into the area and you have slight, slightly better access to the American markets. Like he could, yeah, I'm sure he would tell you that. But it is ultimately his, his, his general geopolitical sort of worldview that he espouses and that he promotes and that you, you kind of operate within. It's very surface level so i would hope that he would give you that kind of private analysis if not then maybe he's sort of that bought into the system and that he genuinely will not look at things that way he would genuinely not you know take that that frame of mind yeah so in
1: his recent book he is he presents himself as and unironic jared diamond respecter which comes as no surprise at all it's like it's it's a very self-serving fraud for the kind of analysis that he presents it's it's the perfect it's the perfect cover it's like yes this is this explains it and we can just go from there and so to what hans was saying yeah one of the most irritating things when you try to Uh, read him or listen to him talk is the way that he frames the actors in the context of international politics he uses countries as if they are actors themselves and rational actors so no matter how small or irrelevant or how much of a vassal state a country is he'll say that you know the i don't know the the puerto ricans made this decision or, you know, Mexico made this decision, or Canada made this decision, or whatever. It's all in terms of this, like, agreement. And it takes for granted the premise of the the great lie of the American Zionist empire, which was that it was here to deliver, like, peace and free markets to the world. And that's his premise for what globalization is and how it was able to— uh, Operated over the past 70 years And he places a lot of emphasis For example On security One of those fucking euphemisms That these people use And he talks about how The United States Navy As the world hegemon Across the oceans Taking the place of the British Were able to deliver security For transatlantic And transpacific Shipping routes and that it's funny because he—it's not really clear what exactly is the security from because he says in the context of who he identifies as like rivals or not quite on board with with the ideas like the Chinese or for example like exploiting the situation. Uh, it's like who who exactly would be the threat to this? And in his book, I mean, first of all. Do you need a global hegemon in order to secure contracts to do overseas uh, oceanic trade? I mean, it seems a
0: little bit. No, but you, but what I I think what, I think what he's actually correct in is if you didn't have the United States basically letting everybody trade with each other without any interference, which I I don't think, yes, the U S does sanction certain countries, But setting that aside, the the countries that play ball don't have to do that or deal with that. And what they also don't have to do is they don't have to fund a Navy. That is I think the big savings to a lot of these countries. Um, In prior years you basically had to Do you need to fund a Navy? If you've got competing nations that are going to blow your ships up or interfere in your trade and use mercantilism, yeah. Traditionally you did. You really did. Um, Or you had pirates. And I think he's not wrong. I that the US basically gave this security benefit to I mean Europe especially like the defense spending as a percentage of GDP is historically much lower. Who are these
1: competing lower. nations? With navies.
0: What? Who are, who are what, what do you mean?
1: <laughs> like I I said who who are these competing nations with navies that you now need a navy <laughs> to be able to do a trade. I mean, it seems ridiculous. Like you could obviously,
0: you could be, you could be blocked. I mean, this is what uh, traditionally would happen there. There you would have to carve out these weird little trading systems, but it was traditionally backed by a military. Um, I think that's, that's what he's getting at. And if that goes away, a lot of these countries are going to have to set up their own uh, militaries.
1: It seems to me to be a a just so. You could disagree, but I think that's. And I want to add something else to it. Yeah. No, I I do disagree because I'll tell you what. Like, so in his book, he talks about he places the focus on this, right? And he he describes the order, the American hegemony, as uh, the Bretton Woods system, right? And he manages to talk about this as the Bretton Woods system without really mentioning the dollar system itself or anything monetary. And it's like, yes, America, out of the kindness of their hearts and their love for freedom and democracy and prosperity, allows nations to trade with each other in dollars.
0: He's not a financial economist. I mean, he's he's a maps guy. I, I honestly I don't think it really is his level yeah, of to an expertise. Extent, I would
4: say he just doesn't he doesn't get it. Like he's he not think and so. He, yeah. yeah. I, I think too, like his whole so his whole um, uh, argument about the nature of globalization starting in like the eighteenth century, uh, it kind of works. Part of the problem is that it, it's I like everything with him. Very high level and simplistic. He's trying to pitch you a narrative. He's trying to tell you a little story, and it kind of works as a, as a as a entry level narrative. That once upon a time, you know, you had disjointed trading networks, and then you had a big trading network. Uh, the reality is that the trading networks of the 17th century and the 18th century when mercantilism was at its peak were just as interconnected and complex as they are now. You had just as many goods and services and people uh, moving back and forth. In some cases, you actually had a greater deal of freedom in what you could move and what you could do and what you could provide between trading networks. Um, Obviously, mercenaries... Um, certain contraband items, slaves, I'm, I'm not condoning any of this, but you know there was actually a greater deal of free trade, so to speak, in those times. There was no limit to what you could trade. You didn't have environmental regulations. Um, you didn't have necessarily even, you know, it's true, claims to lots of land on the planet. You had borders shifting far more often. So commodities and resources and speculation were actually much more uh, much more rampant. So he leaves that out. I think, for example, if you looked at the, the North American fur trade networks, um, starting in the mid-17th century all the way up to the late 19th century, um, it would you know, that would not really fit with his general model or idea that it was all these sort of tightly compacted and, and isolated trade networks that didn't really interact with each other. Uh, And there was only, you know, that the United States uh, inheriting some vestiges of the British empire, you know, making this into an interconnected system. That's just not, that's just not true. It does make some sense that, yeah, you did have, you know, the Dutch East Indies and you had, uh, you know, French uh, North Africa and you had these trade networks. So it was tightly controlled, but you have that today as well. You have... Sort of continent-wide trade agreements that have different trade agreements out with countries outside of those countries. So the EU has a notoriously bureaucratic and complex and difficult tariff policy and trade policy. Um, the United States uh, has, at many times in its history, enacted extreme levels of complexity in trade policy uh, for its own advantages. Um, many countries do this, and there's many blocks that work within each other. Um, so, his whole view is in that it, you know, that you had little markets to turn into big market. One big market doesn't make too much sense. It's also, you know, kind of naive of longer history, history going back beyond the Bronze Age, and you know, sort of deeper in time when we know that trade and movement was far, you know, far more advanced than you know. I think that you would have even believed twenty years ago. Um, you had extreme movement of of goods and services from the far east all the way into the Mediterranean, and in many cases, you didn't have a single hegemon protecting those networks or guaranteeing the security of those networks. You had vested interests in maintaining. T- You know, the United States is the only country that's ever provided this kind of security, and that it's only existed just now, just this way. Is, um, it's a little silly. Another issue that I have you know, noticed with his his overall um, frame of mind: you're talking about you know the country X made a decision, country Y made a decision. He doesn't really leave much room for uh differences within a nation or competing interests coming out of one nation he is you know very trapped in presenting you this world view that you know the only real um parties negotiating competing going to war are nations so if you propose to him, you know, the power of, of companies that transcend borders and transcend culture and and customs, I don't think that that would necessarily fit with this model. I don't even think he would acknowledge that that's a thing, despite that those are probably his largest corporate sponsors. Uh, I don't think that, that that really works for him. He, You know, he wouldn't be able to really convince him.
1: And you have to interrogate. You have to. Interrogate what his conception of a nation is as well. Right, yeah. And he will say that a nation, that it is an economic system. So when he talks about, you know, country X making a deal or having an arrangement with country Y, these are just uh, two economic systems that are... Coming to some kind of negotiation or settlement right. arrangement or whatever. Yeah, they're, it's they're, a very depoliticized view of the world, and w- when that becomes very funny enough, when he starts talking about the contemporary political enmity between Zog and Zog's uh, rivals, international rivals of China and Russia and Iran, et cetera. Uh, He he takes the very political line, but he manages to try to frame this in his depoliticized model of what globalization is. He definitely neglects the political aspect of globalization and sees it only as the integration of these somewhat separate economies, you know, how how they— how they are become interdependent on each other, etc. But, yes, to Han's point, uh, he he does just keep talking about he, he even presents the situation as that he doesn't like to frame some countries as having no sovereignty. No matter how small or irrelevant, there are still uh, countries that have the ability to come to some kind of bargain or deal that is in their interest and presumably they the governments of these countries are operating in some kind of rational self-interest and aren't themselves the agents of
4: an occupying power. Yeah. There's an element of his, of his worldview that is almost a caricature, uh, He really presents every country as sort of a – as if they're all led by a board of directors. Uh, And you bring up a good point in that he does occasionally uh, sort of pitch a country as being not led by a board of directors, but led by political radicals. So, you know – his, if you really had to sum it up, his view is that the world, you know, the main conflict in the world is between this network of board of directors uh, and political radicals who don't want to ingratiate themselves into a wider system. If you framed him for, you know, example, that one of the driving forces of, uh, activity in the world coming out of the United States is, is nothing to do with, uh, with business sense. Uh, but it's political radicalism. I don't really know if that would fit with this view. I don't know if you if it would fit with this view. If you, if you put to him that much of the activity, uh, around the world and coming out of the United States and other countries is actually of a religious nature. There's no tangible economic benefit to a lot of this activity necessarily um but this is a massive driving force around the planet i mean this has been a massive driving force in the muslim world this has been a massive driving force um coming out of the united states whether it's political judaism or evangelical christians or catholicism um, and even down to more minor sects uh, you have to take these into account you have to take into account you know the intersections of um buddhist politics in asia so the the notion that there's anything other than uh, political radicals in the bad countries and everyone else is sort of led by astute board of director types and all these decisions are perfectly agreed upon and these are the you know these are the mediums by which decision makings flow and there's not much else that really impacts the ways of the world it it's very it's very simplistic I think that if if you focus on zaihan as purely a guy who only wants to look at flows of mm, corporate strategy then it makes a lot of sense he makes a lot more sense when you realize that what he's truly analyzing are each country's sort of corporate strategies china has a general corporate strategy the united states has an overall corporate strategy Zimbabwe can have a corporate strategy. You know, the companies, the business communities of those countries do kind of work together. You have associations, you have friendships between business leaders, you have general economic interests. You know, everybody's worried about the same inputs and outputs. Everyone's worried about supply chain problems, energy costs. So yeah, there is some general decision-making and there is some agreements being made. Um, and that makes sense, given that Zion's ultimately a business guy, and you know he's most familiar with the business community. He, his company sort of serves in Stratfor primarily. Um, I think people really overestimate what Stratfor was about. You know, these guys aren't like controlling the planet; they're not that smart. They, they really deliver are like white papers on a market or on a on a region or an economic opportunity. That's what he's familiar with. So if you interpret a lot of his work as not, you know, some groundbreaking geopolitical analysis, but, you know,
0: an entry level view of each country's corporate strategy, I think it works. I think it's helpful. It it, it doesn't answer yeah. a lot of questions, but I think it answers some. And yeah. I wanted to be more specific while we're discussing his, uh, his worldview, not just his failings, but I would say, let's talk about the specifics of what he talks about a little bit more. Uh, I'm looking at some, um, screenshots I took of watching his videos. I, I'm sure they're in the books too, but, um, I kind of consume them just text only, (coughs) but the, um, the the graphs that he shows, I
1: wanted to add a few things. All right. On the I just wanted to say, like to what Hans is saying, the uh, it, I think it's true when he says that he's a Democrat. Uh, yeah. His idea of democracy is the idea of a democracy of the board of directors,
0: and he's or, or respects, the or the diplomats. Actually, I think the intersection between fascist. the the business, the business people and the security people. I mean that that's yeah. And so call it fascist. I mean, it's what it is. <laughs> it's basically yeah, it. It's,
1: he is a, He's a fascist in the sense of uh, a certain type of liberal interpretation of fascism. Uh, he actually kind of shares it, and you would be surprised in his his book about what he has to say about fascism. He's actually uh, this type of—this caricature of fascism. It's not entirely wrong, either. It's just not quite accurate. Uh, fascism as being a very specific— ideology to a very specific country in place. It wasn't... They're, they're talking about sort of this fascism as an economic model, uh, writ large, and, you know, made a... It really, probably more accurately referred to as corporatism, at least corporatism as we would think of it in the English-speaking world. Uh, he is relatively... Uh, he's, he's not hostile... To it in the way that you would expect from someone in his position uh he says it like oh well it's actually a reasonably okay i mean to, i don't have the quotes in front of me it's a, the beginning of the book but so it says basically it's an all right model for uh it has its strengths right And i think that's really where he's coming from he's a he's a technocrat and the extent to which he believes in democracy is only that he believes that a smooth functioning of the corporation is ideal for the process of production and trade.
4: Yeah, he look he looks at political life the way that it, like a commercial real estate developer would look at political life. It's it's what is it that that's going to make this nice and smooth, as you said, Nick? Um, keep everybody happy. Create sort of a, a workable framework between uh, civil authorities and business leaders and with enough room for stakeholders. And this is like really entry level business school stuff. Uh, but that's ultimately what he's pitching. Actually, I think I, I want to say that a lot of like the the podcast content that he does is are with real estate companies. Like he, he's clearly very popular with the real estate guys, particularly because his whole worldview is like this region, or not worldview. His 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 um, his framing is all about. So this region of the United States, let's say the Tri Cities of uh, of you know Eastern Oregon and Washington, it's going to grow at this rate. Here's the advantages it has. Here's the industries it has. Here's the rail networks that connect to it. You know this and this and this. Well, who wants to know that kind of information in that order, in that way? Well, like a real estate company. If a real, <laughs> if I think that. Commercial, I, I commercial also think
0: the energy sector has yeah, a lot of interest. Yeah, yeah,
4: yeah. Energy sector, yeah, for sure. He's he's a. You know, he, it's interesting. I actually appreciate that he is an unironic an oil and gas shell. Like he is one of the last. I think he's accurate in of, his assessments. Oh, he's completely he, accurate. I think he. But, but he, it's interesting is that he is he is like one of the last active ONG um, market shills in the United States that is like that is well known and is not some like vague Twitter personality. Mm-hmm. I mean it's it's insane. It's it's insane that he it, that is boiled down to he's Peter not... Zihan, but he he has maintained a pretty stable position as a as being long on oil and gas, being long on the petroleum sector.
0: Well, remember that Stratfor is based in Texas, and I'm sure he has a lot of relationships from that. Yeah, I was
4: about to say, he's,
1: he's all in on Texas futurism.
0: Yeah, it, I think he's, like, he's,
4: he's, he's. I don't uh, think he's wrong uh, about NXT that either.
1: South of the Rio Grande. <laughs> I, think I think he's he's, he's, he's noticing. On,
0: correct. He's long on coal. Have you? I don't know if you guys have noticed that he's he's like made several. Um. The the only thing I saw on that was that he he said that it has gone up recently, but I I I think he he's just describing basically the trend is that it's gone down a yeah. lot, and then recently in the past two years, probably because of the energy crisis mm-hmm. in Europe, and. Just growth in China and stupidity of policymakers shutting down nuclear plants. That yeah, coal has gone up a little bit, but um, I don't recall him saying he foresees it to be the next big thing. I think he's much much I've more on natural him. gas as as the next. Yeah, he's
4: he's massive on natural gas. I want to say I've seen him at least twice give statements that you can interpret as being long on coal, and it actually makes sense because yeah, I have a. I, Go ahead, Nick. Well, he commented
1: on, with respect to Germany that uh, Germany was, uh, they, it, Well, here to we hear you again. It's Germany is, uh, the exact quote was actually really funny. It was like, uh, Germans are not as smart as you would think. <laughs> talking about uh, their uh, green energy policies, right? And that they were shutting down coal, which was uh, like one of the few viable.
0: No, they're shutting down nuclear, but they're, they're, yeah. They want to shut down coal, but they haven't because they can't.
4: Coal's making a comeback in Germany right now. Yeah, right
0: now. But their plan right is to now, phase it out now, by 2035. The, 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 Germans,
4: the Germans are actively pulverizing the Black Forest. Mm-hmm
0: to make way for new coal mines. I don't know sp- if it's the Black Forest but it's it's like the Ruhr region. They they've definitely moved villages, you know, multiple times. No,
4: no, no, yeah. no, 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 no I'm not kidding. It, it it is the Black Forest. The Black okay.
0: Forest of central and southern
4: Germany is yeah. being actively pulverized so that so that they can make way for new mines. I think he's right and about this. Is, Germans yeah.
0: have gone overboard in their green obsession. That they're doing actually very ungreen and unintelligent things. A, they're shutting down their p- nuclear plants, and B, they're importing massive amounts of fuel, wood, wood fuel from the United States. Uh, to... This is this is another area. This is not Germans doing. This
1: is Zog. This is an area where okay, I would like agree.
0: That, that's the that's the, my the, point. Uh, is the, the Zog
4: so province of Germany. German decision making. This. this this is an area where I would agree with Zayon too, and that he does. Yeah, you know, it's funny in that he. He will sort of buck the trend of a lot of like public intellectuals in America in in uh, glorifying you know the European economic models. <laughs> I mean, I think in some cases he's he's inaccurate or he's he's just he's wrong. But he will say some uncomfortable truths about, let's say, the Germans, for example. Germans have an absolutely terrible. Um, internet and software tech sector just terrible. They have a, an abysmal bureaucracy. Um, they have a, a tremendous amount of problems in government functionality, if you can believe it or not. A lot of Germans will tell you how dysfunctional their government is. Um, Germany actually has a major corruption problem. There's, you know, several political scandals a year in Germany revolving around corruption that would, you know, generate. Huge news in the United States if you know if you had politicians being caught doing that sort of thing, uh, it's very out in the open. There's a lot of problems with Germany. German, you know, the German strengths are mostly centered around, what they've always been centered around chemicals, steel, iron, automobiles, and and high tech machining. Like this, it's, these are the German yeah. strengths. Industry, in you know, real heavy industry, anything outside of that, they've actually always really struggled, or they they didn't only. Not only do they struggle, they actively um,
0: make. Yeah, the Germans are interesting forces. in that they're sort of, um, sort of like the Asians of Europe, in that they're very yeah. good at precision, but mm-hmm. and they're 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 good at scientific research, but they have a very rigid culture, and so they, yeah. their companies don't move as rapidly as what the information technology sector seems to demand and they're, they're weak in that. And especially on the consumer side, they, they do have SAP, which is, I guess the only company I can really Just think of. There's probably a couple of others I'm tech. forgetting, but yeah, it's, and it's, it's actually built around, uh, manufacturing resource planning, MRP, and ER, ERP as well. But it's, um, that, that's where it comes from. It's basically helping Porsche, like make sure that their accounts work, but also their assembly sequencing is actually integrated, blah, blah, blah. But they're, um, they're kind of a rigid society, so they don't have a lot of entrepreneurialism. Uh, they do have a lot of uh, small businesses and Mittelstands. But anyway, this is not a show on Germany, but just, just my quick summary.
1: Well, I would add, just as a quick aside, like I'm not a tech guy at all, but I will say that of the more modern German automobiles that I have owned, the like computer interface is like vastly inferior to japanese
4: cars <laughs> it's like every time yeah. like yeah
0: oh, it's clunky it's very clunky yeah, I would say yeah. ger-
4: german software enge- yeah german software engineering is is notoriously bad uh it's interesting when you get germans outside of their own engineering culture i'm, I'm sorry german software engineers outside of that culture mm-hmm. get them out of their companies i mean they're they're quite good.
0: Yeah, they're they're um, smart. It's just the culture is but, not really geared towards this type of stuff.
4: Yeah. Here's something else to consider is that um, when Nick was saying, you know, they were talking about occupied government and, and sort of the green energy decisions, this is an area where I think Zihan's analysis and his ability to see the world would fall short. What do you make of the German Green Party, die Grüne, You know, this is patently obviously the party of the CIA. I I mean, it's (laughs) not even disputed anymore. How else do you view that? How else do you view sort of the one hundred percent the multi-decade-long political suicide of the country? If not, uh, who would conduct themselves that way if they were not doing it to to destroy the country from within? So you you wouldn't work with his his analysis like well the Germans aren't that smart well how what are you supposed to do when you have you know masters of political chicanery getting into office time after time after time and, and their stated policy goals which they then enact are to defenestrate German energy concerns. I, I, it's it's just it's, it's totally not just
0: that bizarre. i mean he he's zion has basically gone out and said i think a little bit hyperbolically but nonetheless he said that german industry is dead and I, eh, yes if this, this energy crisis continues it, it, but I, I, I don't know how that's actually going to be the case forever i think they're going to fix it eventually this is
4: also true yeah this is the other and, one with him is that he will he'll the, make these sort of bigger proclamations and and oftentimes you know they don't they don't pan out like if you listen to zihan back in february the Ukrainian, the Ukrainians should have been marching in Moscow by now. Like the, you know, like the Russian army was gonna oh. implode in April, and like it, it, clearly the, you know, he, I
0: didn't remember him saying that. he, a, yeah. he was, he was,
4: he was. Yeah, like, no, he,
0: uh, he,
1: Hans is right. And yeah. so on this subject, I, I, I think that one of the more just in terms of recent developments, one area where you're getting he's gonna run into. he's going to find himself tangled up in his own bullshit very quickly is with respect to the uh, bombing of the Nord Stream pipeline, because this is where you got to wonder if there's a difference between his public statements and what he would do uh, privately consulting with whatever people are paying him to hear what his intelligence shit is. Because, you know, he's obviously not dumb enough to believe like, western media propaganda that i don't know maybe like putin blew up his own pipeline or whatever like he's <laughs> he's not that dumb but he's gonna probably have to play you know he said because i listened to him talk about nord Stream, uh prior to the bombing mm-hmm. and it was very interesting the way he framed it and it was as you would maybe expect from him He frames it as this dichotomy that the Germans are facing because the the Germans have the ability to make these decisions. Right. So the Germans have to decide between uh, like economic security, as in a uh, energy deals with the East or political security, as in like preventing the asiatic hordes from once again you know marching on berlin they need to rely on the american nato security umbrella or whatever and this is like a bad place for germany to be in uh, because he asks like a, he acts like america is actually has something to offer europe in a positive way which is the lie uh, it now it has like Europe by the balls and it's about dependency and I'm sure that the audience is in Texas selling na- uh, natural gas
0: liquefied natural gas period. tankers yep yeah. yeah yeah
4: yeah I mean this is this is part of my theory as to you know why Spain for example is probably going to become one of the dominant players in europe is okay i
0: thought you were joking when you said that can you explain No, that, though? I, <laughs> I, don't, I don't know what you're talking you know, about
4: that you know, i was joking you know spain will become one of the energy and superpowers from what of mediterranean simply because by um by distance in the atlantic it has access to america's um lng supplies and it already has fully built out and it already has fully built out and equipped lng terminals and plans to build more okay it has its own offshore oil reserves its own offshore natural gas reserves it has interior gas reserves you know, spain you know this is
0: so are they like just, most just european stuff. countries they don't permit fracking but if they did they'd have i, I don't know the maps but so d- they, does yeah, spain have they a did, lot of uh, they did, tight oil they and did stuff like that it. and Natural if they did
4: permit it, and they and they loosened their restrictions on offshore oil rigging, they would. Um, they could change their their country overnight. They could turn into like another Norway. Okay. Uh, but anyway, you know, you're right, Nick, in the sense that you know what is he 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 wouldn't consider the opposite of that that scenario either. That maybe the political security of Germany is actually better secured in getting the Russians ingratiated with them. As their energy supplier, it cuts both ways. He wouldn't really. I don't think he has the capability to see it that way. If you had to look at from the Germans' perspective, go back to the early two thousands. What did the Germans? What did the Germans see in the world? What does Schroeder, the guy who you know, ends up doing this deal, see? Uh, he sees Germany at, you know, at a crossroads, and he sees Russia as mostly defeated and broken, but potentially. Um, yeah, sort of slowly rising from the ashes country. And he wants to ensure that the, the old rivalry between the Germans and the Russians does not reemerge anytime soon.
0: Well, what is the he, best he doesn't? That?
4: Well, he doesn't want it. I don't think the Schroeder, I don't think the German leadership. Oh, I
0: think you are talking about Zion. Yes. Sorry. No, no,
4: no. They, they, they didn't want that.
0: Obviously, no, they didn't no, no, want no,
4: no. So what why would they why would they, you know, start to design Nord Stream? People forget Nord Stream, this project goes back like almost 20 years at this point. I mean, there's the there's the history of this is pretty long. You know, the, as soon as if the Germans decided to like betray NATO or however it's being framed by people like Zion and by doing this pipeline, this is an old strategy. And keep in mind this is keeping this is this is part of the wider German and European strategy going back. To the middle of the Cold War, and even in some cases before that, and that we, you know, the Europeans were pulling energy supplies out of Russia for for nearly a century now. This has been going on. This is part of the European security collective. In some ways, this is part of German security ideas. What if we make Russia reliant on us as their main buyer? Why would they destroy and attack and undermine their buyer? And in return, we will deliver to Russia finished industrial goods. We'll deliver to them you know, pristine medical care. We'll deliver to them professional services. And this will be a good deal for both of us. He wouldn't really see the world that way, I don't think, Zion. He wouldn't approach it that way. He wouldn't want to view the inverse of, of the scenario you described, Nick, which is the one I described. I'm not saying that one is necessarily the truth, but if you're going to actually engage in geopolitics, you have to consider everybody's frame of mind, everybody's strategy, all their decision-making trees, and you have to try and figure out why they actually did what they did. So it's to say the Germans aren't that smart, if, it, if this had worked, it would have been a stroke of genius for the Germans, I think, from their point of view. That they would have finally solved the problem of russia for decades to come they would have made russia reliant on germany which would have been the in which would have been massive massive achievement to make russia reliant on germany as the largest buyer of their products which is mostly raw materials and oil and natural gas now that didn't work and it didn't work because the united states stepped in and made sure it didn't work and he will—he would not acknowledge right. that the United States has, you know, actively taken a role in destroying that relationship. And I'm not saying it was good or bad. I'm just this is objectively what happened. And there's a long history of this too. I mean, going back to World War One, going back to Wilson, you had people like Colonel Mandelhouse, Edward Mandelhouse. Who were sort of the prime geopolitical shapers of that era over a hundred years ago, and what were some of their objectives? You know, one of their main objectives, one of the main objectives of Mandelhaus and his crew, was to take the German chemical industry. Over a hundred years ago, you know, you fast forward to today, and objectively, that has not changed. The United States is actively pursuing the core industrial competencies of germany wants them for its own wants its talent wants their talent wants the infrastructure and who can, you know who can blame the united states everybody wants whatever, whatever well now are. you have all these german firms that are basically being
1: forced to set up shop in it's north america
4: that, yeah and i was just about to comment I, that i think crown, the crown jewel yeah. of the german chemical industry BASF is now announced that it is leaving Germany to an extent, and so this is this is the fulfillment of yeah, over a hundred years. Of they American need natural gas. Pol- this is this is the fulfillment of over a hundred years of American foreign policy planning. To say that this is the, the Germans, you know, Zeihan would reduce this to the Germans aren't that smart. You can also view this as the Germans are simply just outsmarted by the Americans. <laughs> but you have two very very highly competent. Highly competitive groups of people fighting over these opportunities. He would reduce it to you know this very simple, uh, strange political argument almost, and that the Germans are anti-democratic and and they don't believe in the promises of, of Western liberalism. That's why they build a pipeline with the Russians. I yes, I mean if you
1: compare yeah. his analysis, someone like Michael Hudson, Michael Hudson frames it as a. a a direct war against continental Europe that's being waged by the financial powers of the United States and the City of London Jews, etc. Yeah. And Zihan likes to be very cutesy about how he frames like democratic America. You know, he'll talk about China's, you know, dystopian Panopticon spy system with no mention of the fact that he's been employed directly by people who do that exact same shit jesus in the united christ, states and like. sell it to international firms and governments what's that well it's just, I was just
4: no 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 it's jesus christ like i feel like i live in I, I don't even live in the same universe i did nine or ten years ago when the edward snowden stuff became public like how <laughs> you're you know he's talking about how china's this insane spy driven panopticon like how is that not what the United States is on some level? You know, how do how do you how do you square that circle? It's unreal to me that he could make the you know people like him make these claims oh, Well, China. You know, has this human rights problem, has a surveillance issue. I mean, the United States is one of the most heavily and surveilled and controlled
1: Snowden wasn't. Who's Alan Hamilton? Also Texas based.
4: Oh, I can't remember. Booze? Were they like Virginia? I think it's Virginia.
0: I think it's Virginia. Yeah. Hey, hey guys, I wanted, to, wanted, wanted to make a point CIA here. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, thank you. Um, sure. So, re- regarding the pipeline, I remember Zihan putting out a little three-minute clip about the uh, the Nord Stream leakage. Uh, first of all, the uh, the sort of notion that this could be accidental is ridiculous. Uh, MIT technology review, uh, which is a somewhat technical, but not, not too hard to understand magazine from MIT, obviously puts out a pretty good analysis of events like this. And they, Basically, we're quoting somebody that said this This is a one out of 100,000 years kind of thing where this could be accidental. Uh, they were looking at, you know, the earthquake Richter scales and just the way they were localized and sourced from. And it's just unlikely that this this would have been a natural occurrence. So the most likely conclusion is that, is that it's. Said it's that it no, 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 no. I'm giving giving, giving giving a little background, giving a little background. So the notion that this is a natural phenomenon is absurd. And so you would conclude that it's sabotage. Now he, in his clip didn't really point any fingers. He just sort of gave what the, the sort of theories are of the day. But what really caught my attention was when he said that um, this, this is just a, uh, a pipe with a little bit of water in it. Uh, as sort of a downplaying of the the significance of this, I thought that was the most ridiculous thing he said, and I, I I'm trying to confirm this with more sort of uh, industrial and engineering data. But from what I understand, the way they built that pipeline was very sophisticated, in that they they had a ship that laid this thing down segment after segment, and then they'd have to dispatch underwater welders to go down and connect all those pieces together now the the mit article basically says that in order to get a welder down there you have to the the ratio between the time he's able to go down there and the time he's getting reacclimated to our sort of atmospheric pressure is is inordinate and i I'd have to scan it again to find it exactly but basically the amount of time you can spend down there is very limited because of that. And the fact that when they're building it, they're putting the, the segments in without water on them, obviously. So they're, they're sealing it off segment by segment. The fact that the thing opened up and the entire friggin' pipe is now full of water means you got to replace the whole friggin' thing as far as I can understand. And maybe they have valves or something, but this thing is a, is a massive, massive mess up. And it's literally at the bottom where, of the ocean, yeah, where he's like okay, downplaying it like, "Oh, it's just yeah. a little bit of water. Are you freaking kidding me? This now, is he's either a lying or he just doesn't understand challenge. it. But that yeah. makes me suspect that he's covering up for somebody Well, this he's, is he's huge, being huge He's effort. being flippant. He's being flippant in that, you know, this
4: is this is like the uglier side of who he is and who. You know, Fuki, I mean, we talked about Fukuyama. I mean, they're very much the same, and that they do have this sort of voracious, uh, flippant, ugly side when it comes to the you know the empire's goals. And they will suddenly become very vicious and they'll become, you know very dismissive and almost gleeful when there's destruction. I mean, all these types were just head over heels, you know, watching the United States you know, arrange the the execution of Saddam there's not much difference here they 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 do sort of seek out this kind of violence and then they they downplay it after it's been done it would be it would actually be you know the kind of intelligence that something
1: like this was going to go through that that would be something worth some money you know
0: oh sure maybe
1: it's good to be flipping and uh if you did know something about it, and well, maybe if you know, you know how to trade futures and options,
0: this, this would be a, a million dollar day for yeah, you. Yeah. Um, and, uh, yeah. unless you guys have, well, to I, mean, I, he's, I had to so some...
1: appearing clownish and flipping is yeah. maybe the right move If uh, just speculating. But if that was the case that you, some of your CIA buddies, uh, gave you a tip in this direction and you share this with your big money clients, the, that's probably pretty good for you, huh? Well,
4: so yeah, it's and probably his, best to his, his big take clients a flip in
1: after the fact.
4: His big clients and his favorite industries oil and natural gas, who stand to benefit tremendously from the, you know, the the literal uh implosion of the German energy policy.
0: Did you guys have time to talk about the demographic stuff he discusses? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. All right. This I is got a to, I got, um, yeah. Th- this is a major component of his talks and his books actually don't get into it too much, but in his talks he sort of zeroes in on this a lot, which um, is sort of interesting as to like what his thinking on the audience pitch should be. But his um, his sort of go to graphic is this thing that is called the population pyramid, where he shows people by, well, if nobody's familiar, it's sort of hard to explain just with words, but essentially it shows the different generations over time, how many people there are by male and women on the left and the right. And a healthy country or nation or group of people should basically have a pyramid of more children. And then as people, get older and die, it sort of shrinks from there. Um, So the generation should be replenishing themselves by enough sufficient population at the entry level generation. And then as you age, you're eventually going to die and then you disappear. So it looks like a pyramid. Now, the few countries that remain in the world that actually have a pyramid are interesting in that they're I haven't really sort of assessed as to what they have in common, but there's, there's, I think basically only six in his estimation. Uh, and that's India, uh, maybe Mexico uh, and probably a few African countries um, that are of advanced, you know, semi-advanced nature. Now I think if you just look at Africa, they pretty much all have that, that sort of pyramid look. But what he talks about is the decline of a lot of the powers in the world are, Attributable mainly to this, or largely, or there's a lot uh, to attribute to the fact that their populations are shrinking and they're not having enough babies. And he cites countries like South Korea, uh, Canada, all of Europe, basically, uh, Russia in particular, and the big one, China, uh, as the reason why these countries are actually not going to be relevant going forward, or they're going to be much less relevant. America is sort of in between uh countries like India and countries like Russia is that the pyramid looks sort of like um it's a little bit narrow on the bottom, but it it's not it's not like a a top, a spinning top, which is what the sort of characteristic of a a baby bust looks like where you have a narrowing population as a spinning turtle. did you say? Yeah, exactly. Uh, it, it basically looks like a, a yeah, a little thing that you'd spin. And America doesn't quite have that because the base is a little bit bigger. Now, he de- of course, he doesn't explain why that's the case. Uh, I think a lot of it has to do with immigration and the demographic shifts and the races. But he, he never touched that, of course. Uh, but he says this is the biggest reason, I think the second reason being the fact that, you know, the, the Chinese don't have a very good, uh, protection of their supply chain. But I think the main reason he thinks China is on the way down is because their population is going to shrink. Uh, and he says that that's true for Russia, uh, and a few other currently wealthy countries that he, he projects are going to have problems in the future. And he talks about it a lot. So I, I thought we'd open up the discussion on that topic. I'd like to hear what you guys think.
4: I think that, um, so I'd like to tackle first the the American demographic situation. So the United States has a poor domestic fertility rate. It's below replacement level. What the United States has buoying its demographic future is immigration to a very large extent. And it's actually becoming increasingly uh, more reliant on immigration. It's not static. We need higher and higher and higher levels of immigration to maintain population growth here. In the case of China, uh, I think that he is right to an extent, at least on the demographic front. I think recently it was confirmed... What many people have long speculated, which was that China had actually been lying about its population to begin with, that China's population was actually um, probably significantly lower than what they had claimed. And I think that now it's acknowledged they've been – they overcounted by at least 100 million or something to that extent. If I had to guess, it's probably more. I would also speculate that large swaths of China um, are much older than we've been led to believe – Uh, And that uh, between disease, uh, poor environmental conditions, poor quality of life, poor health outcomes, um, you'll see a much, much larger demographic fall off in China. Does this necessarily mean that China is doomed? Uh, I don't think so. There are probably other factors working against China. I don't think I'm not a China futurist but I, I don't think that Zion is necessarily correct in, in being or being so confident that China is sort of doomed to fail I don't think there's any, any concrete evidence of that on the Russian front I think he is uh, spectacularly wrong on a couple issues number one he is absolutely obsessed with uh, the Volga region and he's obsessed with Tatarstan and he's obsessed with uh, some of these uh, sort of fanciful ideas of breakaway republics within Russia. Um, Extremely, extremely unlikely for a couple of reasons. On a cultural level, Many of these regions in Russia are uh, majority ethnic. I'm sorry, not a cultural level, and on, on a racial level, on an ethnic level, they are majority ethnic Russian. You have you know you have sort of supposedly ethnic republics across Russia that are majority ethnic Russian, and they're supposedly supposed to belong to some other subethnic group. This is true across the Volga region. This is true across the Ural regions. This is true all the way up to the Komi Peninsula. This is true all over Russia. Um, In the regions that actually matter. In the regions where there are not, there's not an ethnic Russian uh, majority or massive plurality, there happens to be a large Russian military presence. And the populations there are already pretty small. In our poor, not very well uh, sort of organized, and are mostly connected to the Russian commodities market. So they're heavily reliant on the Russian state, providing a certain level of uh, cohesion and functionality for their day-to-day living. So the idea of some kind of breakaway scenario in Russia is actually extremely unlikely. On a cultural front, I think he really overestimates the desire within Russia of people to break apart. Um, there's a tremendous amount of intermarriage in Russia in various Russian regions now um, particularly Tatarstan which he, uh, he's obsessed with Tatarstan um, the rate of, of intermarriage between Russians and Tatars and others is, is pretty high and they are exceedingly culturally Russian um, the, the, a breakaway idea even if it was, completely facilitated by the brightest minds in Western intelligence, would probably fail. Um, And it's certainly not gonna happen organically, not to any large extent, if ever. And on the demographic front, he is right in that the Russians are declining demographically. That's not exactly a novel uh, point because people have been talking about the Russian demographic decline since 1993. However, uh, the Russians have made certain strides in uh, abating their demographic decline. The last few years have seen lower levels of drug and alcohol-induced deaths in Russia, low levels of crime, lower levels of murder, the birth rate is up, higher levels of wage growth. I'm not saying the situation in Russia is perfect, but it is totally possible to reverse this decline. And they appear to have started to take steps to do so. And many of the cultural and social problems, the malaise within Russia uh, started to clear the last few years. And that's true within the United States as well. You have seen uh, over the last four or five years sort of almost like a a white demographic boom. Uh, You have seen the return of certain industries in a very small amount, but that is bolstering our demographic front here. And interestingly, I think the United States will benefit from immigration from Europe. One area where zihan I don't think Zihan's spoken about this yet, but my personal theory is that uh, Europe will decline pretty precipitously over the next maybe 10 years. Uh, And you will see, perhaps for the first time in nearly a century, a massive immigration wave from Europe to the United States. Um, at least in the hundreds of thousands, if not millions. And these will be people seeking permanent residency in citizenship. And you will see a bolstering, ironically, of the white demographic profile, and you could even potentially stabilize white demographics in the United States. So the demographic situation that he lays out, it, you know, it's, it's accurate in the sense that you have all these countries that are declining, that rely on immigration. Um, but I don't think that then it's necessarily it spells doom for everybody, um, and I don't believe that a lot of these demographic declines are necessarily permanent. And in the case of some of these countries, it might be beneficial. So, for example, you know you have uh, Japan. This is a country that people have been talking about as suffering a demographic decline for what Adam like thirty years, thirty Z-
1: years. Z- fairly positive on japan uh since you bring that up yep in his book he basically says japan offers uh uh, another a possible model uh, by which you can cope with and manage uh, demographic decline
0: yeah yeah but he, he has admitted that it is sort of a um comparison amongst its peers not not so much a comparison amongst what is he considers ideal in that South Korea is doing even worse demographically. And as are as is China. And he also adds that Japan has a naval, a second largest Navy. Uh, so it has a, somewhat of a naval lead and also uh, geographically speaking has a blue water, um, play field that China is boxed in by from yeah. basically all the, uh, all the U.S. allies, especially Japan, but also the Philippines and Korea. Yeah.
4: I think that his general idea of, you know, demographics uh, is, is purely a numbers game and that if your demographic profile is down, then you're then you're headed down, is, again, a little too simplistic. However... There is something to be said about his his analysis in that if most of these countries continue to work with the same financial model, the same banking model, the same real estate models uh, that they've been in the same consumer spending models that so they've been dealing with for the last century, if they don't seek change, if they don't try to amend their systems if they don't try to implement new growth policies that aren't reliant on those systems necessarily um, then they will decline it'll be inevitable interestingly you know he doesn't speak that much about automation and for a long time the sort of liberal synthesis was that yes the populations are declining however quality of life, growth, and investment will not slow down because we are going to make up those declines with technology and automation and improved processes. You haven't seen major investments in automation last 10 years. For the most part, it's already sort of peaked, particularly in the automotive and industrial sectors. Increasingly, you no. We're reliant on improvements in uh, software and and processes or bureaucratic processes or administrative processes or professional ones to make up for our lack of population growth um, and to make up for a lack of skill sets. However much longer that can sort of hold out, I don't know. He doesn't speak about it too much. If I had to surmise, I think Zihan's view of the United States, in particular, is that it'll actually become the only, you know, major growing demographic profile on the planet, and it won't need to worry about automation. It'll it'll be able to implement low cost manufacturing again. So there is a there is a future, potentially. I think if you work within Zihan's worldview. For the United States, is at, let's say four hundred million people, four hundred and twenty million people, and it's sort of successfully onshored or reshored or redeveloped a lot of its industries but because it has such a massive and let's face it, probably very impoverished new population. You won't have to invest in high technology, automation, improved processes. It can get away with doing things the way it did in the 20th century, the early 20th century, which is pure manual labor input. So I, I do see a future for a large manufacturing in the United States, but it will probably look more like the lower rung of manufacturing in China currently than any sort of utopian future version of manufacturing that we might imagine. It'll probably regress slightly in its technological complexity, and will focus more on utilizing the resources, which we'll have plenty of, which will be low energy costs and uh, low cost of labor.
0: Well, yeah, I think you're right. I, I think the, the skill set in the United States in the middle tier of manufacturing has gone away and whatever's left at the high end. It's, it's so dependent on foreign supply chains that they're smart enough that they could sort of reshore that. But the, the middle where you're sort of, you go to school like to become a machinist that just doesn't exist anymore. And the unskilled stuff where you're basically you're, you're slapping labels on things or filling Amazon orders in some Amazon warehouse, you know, basically dumping things in a carpet box and, and taping it together, that's unskilled. And that is pretty much looking at the the price of labor, commodity, you know, commodity lens, uh, essentially. And that that could be reassured. I think that's when he says that the cost of manufacturing in the United States is actually cheaper now than, or he says North America. Now, does that include parts of the United States that border Mexico or just he's talking about Mexico. I'm not exactly sure, but I think you're right that the the low end could come back. The, the middle part though, that's going to take a long time. That's going to take a, a very long term or medium term at the very least re-emphasis on the trades and technical and, and vocational education that is probably going to take 10 to 20 years. And maybe he's gearing, you know, the deep state for that. I don't know, but um it's not going to happen overnight. And you you could have some of this again, this, this low-skilled stuff happen whenever. It's it's not hard to train people to fill Amazon orders, but if you're going to have them working in chemicals and metallurgy and metals uh even automotive assembly, there is some skills involved and I think that'll take more time. <laughs> Sure, with our standards of technology. He does place a lot of I... emphasis,
1: though, and this might get in a bit to the automation question, is he places a lot of emphasis on specialization and highly technical production processes. So he'll, he'll say things, for example, like, uh, yeah, um, you know, microchips or whatever are very complicated to make, but it's actually not that complicated to get, like, Jose to like pull the lever in this production process to do like one specific application of the production. Well, that, you can, yeah. you can make do with a very highly specialized technocratic, uh, managerial component and then just have a bunch of, yeah. uh, glorified grain slave labor. Uh, you know I guess return to tradition in the American context but, I mean yeah, that's what I'm saying. if he's he talking just, about electronics assembly
0: plants like putting things on a circuit board that's correct but if you're talking about a semiconductor fab that's absolutely not right I don't know if that's what he said but um, just wanted to distinguish because well, the electronics supply chain is very complicated
1: About ch- China he's very derisive of China he'll say things like uh, when it comes to their uh chip technology so mm-hmm. say oh well like if you want to get a margarita machine that plays a ditty like yeah, you get a chinese that's, chip that's too and simplistic. if you want to do serious yeah but what's funny is he then goes on to emphasize that taiwan on the other hand wow that's that's where the real innovation is
0: <laughs> so what What taiwan has you know, is magic, basically uh, process technology and the taiwan semiconductor tsmc has the world's best engineers for figuring out how to actually etch onto circuits uh in silicon wafers chips that don't fail when they go through you know the machine and that's hard it's basically manufacturing engineering And they've got their own secretive processes for these. But the chip designs are not Taiwanese. They're not Chinese. But the manufacturing skill set is in Taiwan. Um, But I think my point when we were talking privately and your point perhaps now is that the Chinese aren't stupid. I mean, obviously, there's Singapore, there's Taiwan, there's Hong Kong. All these places are sort of tangentially Chinese, but not like necessarily Beijing run, but they're still very capable and Korea is obviously capable. Japan's obviously very capable. So I, you know, it's, it's sort of silly to say that China couldn't do it, but he's not wrong in observing thus far. They have not been able to perfect the, I think it's the, the seven even, or the nine nanometer process. Um, that, that's sort of like the, the size of the uh, transistor. The Taiwanese are getting to three nanometers. Russia's way back at like 27 nanometers. The Russians are horrible at this. Um, and I think it, it really depends on sort of how you view this. I think his, his sort of cute analogies of oh, the, the margarita mixer versus the iPhone, which is made in China, by the way. But it's designed in California. It, it's, it's too simplistic, but it's it's meant for his sort of midwit audiences Hans was saying also offline um, Yeah, yeah the,
4: like the Russian th- that's just so funny <laughs> I mean the Russian applications for most of their of their chip industry are, are basically the military like they oh
0: sure yeah, Sukhoi fighters. <laughs> anything tests, you know that's basically
4: yeah any, anything anything other than like the military and any sort of uh, domestically developed uh, or retrofitted machines for Extra, like extra, I don't know, yeah. metal extraction or mining extraction, like any kind of crude, large machine that needs you know, not much necessarily computing or computing complexity to accomplish its goals. That's what they're going to specialize in. <laughs> like, to ask them to do high-tech electronics, man. The, just, the
0: Russians have always sucked at yeah, electronics yeah. for whatever reason. And I have this book they called They suck at the...
4: comms, too. Have you ever noticed that? Like, they have really really bad
0: communication systems like they've just never um i've never never been been to russia but um you know they have satellites (laughs) they have a good rocket program i mean they're they're sort of weird like they're good at nuclear engineering they're good at rockets yeah they're good at they're uh, good
4: at they're good at theoretical mathematics aeronautics theoretical nuclear engineering
0: metallurgy right and that's about it (laughs) yeah
4: (laughs) well i was gonna say i have this book i I, I
0: gotta pull it out i don't even know where it is but it's it's such a good book um and somebody gave it to me actually um it might have been my mom actually she found it and it was like a dollar somewhere but it's amazing it's this great book called uh the book of modern warplanes and it's it's dated because it's like from the eighties, so obviously this is like Cold War stuff. But they it, it's really for that time especially, but it's still like the pictures are ab- absolutely stunning. Professional photography and people who knew what the hell they were doing. They had photographs of all the the design phases and production phases and implementation and deployment phases of all these fighter jets, and uh, and bombers too, but mainly jets uh, the fighters and it included though for the time it was really extraordinary it had uh, the the MiGs and the Sukhois and all the sort of Soviet stuff and I remember very keenly looking at the sort of cockpits and avionics systems of the Soviets versus the American and it was like night and day I mean the the, the, the Russian Soviet systems they had these like grainy looking like they didn't even have screens. They're basically, it's all like switches and then they might have like a, a, really rudimentary gauge or dial or something. And then you smash cut to the American fighter jets and they have digital displays. There's sort of interactive graphics and three dimensional displays and all this stuff. And it, it was very clear that the Soviets were extremely behind in their electronics. Um, I mean, they they had, like, you know, wiring systems that they knew how to do. They could control circuits, but it was not... They didn't have the microprocessors. They didn't have the computing capabilities. Uh, they didn't have the visualizations, the displays. And it's still sort of apparently the, the problem. I mean, and there's a lot of smart Russian software engineers, but they just don't have that industrial base uh, from, I guess, that Soviet legacy. And in the industries you did mention, the metallurgies, you know, the, the heavy, you know, steel making, aluminum making, that's all from the Soviet era. And that was sort of a comparative advantage for them because they had large access to natural resources and basically slave labor who <laughs> had to do what they're told. And so, doing this hor- horrifically unhealthy uh, aluminum smelting and nickel mining and all that stuff that that was sort of their go-to. But when it came to the sort of microelectronics revolution, they they just couldn't couldn't hack it. Um, and then regarding China. Um, they're sort of a different case where they're really, really, really good at manufacturing. Unlike the Russians, they're more efficient at it. Um, but they don't have that creative edge and the, the communist party in particular is very, uh, involved in a lot of things. And so I think there's some somewhat more difficulty in, getting startups off the ground. However, they do have a very competitive startup culture, but it's it's been more successful in the software space for some reason. Um, the microprocessor stuff, they've never really been able to do it. They've done a lot of assembly work, uh, Huawei, making cell phones, etc. But it, a lot of it is knockoffs, j- just done it like a cheaper price. So their ability to innovate has really yet to be seen. Uh, the South Koreans have done a better job with that. Um, but, you know, who knows? I mean, in China, obviously it has a lot of smart people. Um, but some of this stuff is, it's not necessarily about smarts. It is some sometimes about, do you have access? And I think that's what the Biden administration has done recently is that they've cut off access to the, um, I'm forgetting the name of it, but it's a Dutch company that has the, basically the only ab- like machine that can make, uh, seven and and three. SLR,
4: ASMR, whatever it is.
0: Um, uh, it's, yeah, it's something, it's an acronym. I've been blanking on it, but yeah, Yeah. it's a lithography company and they're, um, they're pretty much the go-to and then it's Taiwan semiconductor can buy them. Samsung, I guess can buy them, but, uh, because of these sanctions now on China, um, China can't. And so they're going to be left behind on just the, even not forgetting the design stuff, but just the manufacturing ability. They can't even do that. And then Zion put another uh, video out where he's basically saying that all American citizens working with Chinese companies or in China can no longer do that or they're sort of traders or something. (laughs) So, so they're, they're really going hard on this thing. Um, And uh, looking forward, it's, it's anybody's guess, but just, the access to that supply chain alone is pretty bad for China. And so I would agree with that. But I would disagree if he's basically saying that the Chinese are not innately capable of it. And I'm not really sure he's saying that, but um, I don't think that's right. I just think that they've yet to be able to do that. And empirically, that's correct. But going forward, it's hard to say.
1: Well, you become more capable of that kind of thing when you let um, Mossad or CIA-connected NGOs into your country and uh, let
0: them do
1: what they want. That it improves your capabilities.
0: You, you certainly have you access more democratic to well. those uh, <laughs> <laughs> to those goodies that I was trying to mention. It, it's,
1: it's interesting because there's a it presents a contradiction that I came away reading his book that there's a few that so. One question I would ask is with this presentation, why exactly then is Zihan a globalist or as he describes himself, an internationalist? If this creates a system that is very fragile and has overextended itself in that it assumes things will go on as they were and this creates... Basically impending doom when the system starts to fall apart and all of these interdependencies lead to, you know, a convergence of collapses and catastrophes the world over. Uh, Why is that a good system? Because the reason that he's bullish on America and to a certain extent he's bullish on like Australia and New Zealand uh, of course, yeah, he's b- bullish on the Anglosphere uh, outside of Britain, which uh, has made a mistake of Brexit or something, his is perspective on that. But uh, he basically tends towards the idea that you're in the strongest position if you have the means to move towards something resembling an autarkic system. So what exactly did America, for example, gain From creating this international system. And he says, for example, one thing I thought was very interesting is he says that he says outright that America did not gain economically, that the arrangement that the Bretton Woods arrangement was not an economic interest of America. It was in the security interest of America. He called it the American sacrifice,
0: not the American century.
1: Yes, 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 yeah, 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 right, right. How how fucking grandiose, you know. It's like, yeah, just because we just want to make sure that everyone gets that democracy good and hard, you know. It's just, uh, we'll take one for the the international community. (laughs) (laughs) And it's kind of funny because he can, you know, and you know he can sell this to people. He can sell it to whoever he's talking to or, you know, is being invited to talk in front of. Uh, the people who are basically uh, pushing for these conflicts to be escalated right, with respect to the uh, policy towards China and Russia, he can safely assure them that, uh, look, you can be as belligerent as you want. You can go. It's fine because America is still the future because the landmass itself offers unique strategic and uh, Uh, resource advantages it's got you know the networks of rivers that allow for easy to trade uh, domestically you can bring stuff from the north down to the south whatever and you could build a a better rail system etc like america is in a good position from a perspective of just geography and agriculture is another big thing that he stresses as far as the amount of growing zones available to America. I mean, it doesn't really seem, he doesn't really have a pitch for why it is we should have been internationalist outside of just a fallback on sort of conventional Zog line that America is delivering some kind of security to the world or or itself, I guess, by Engaging in a, a struggle over Europe with uh, with the uh, Eastern powers.
0: Yeah, you're right. He doesn't so really. What do you think? Is it he doesn't like, explain. You, you the, the, yeah, I think he's he's just being well, observationally. More,
1: let me add one. Good. his one of his one of the things he he likes to say too is that. Uh, it was never, like, the post-war, the immediate post-war era where the boomers were, you know, booming. Uh, that was, like, as good as it's ever going to be, basically, or at least within the foreseeable future. And that, like, from here on is going to be an unwinding and a general impoverishment and things that people were used to having they will no longer have. And some people are going to be so screwed that they're going to starve to death, etc., so like what, what's where's the case that this benevolent american hegemony was like a good idea why does he even bother to make the cases it doesn't really seem that he no
0: does. he doesn't
1: it just takes it for granted and it's yeah there's something very slimy and dishonest about the whole thing whereas like a more traditional neoconservative type zog shill will just be like yeah america number one like it's great uh the best uh, does what it wants. It's it's fine. Like, whereas he takes this neutral, more neutral perspective, where he he doesn't even say he doesn't even use the we when referring to Americans. He does what I do. I like I, I do the <laughs> same thing. I refer to the Americans.
0: You know, that's been that's that's that that been a big trend, I think, over the past American, 10, 20 years, especially in this kind of uh, global era. Is that uh, I, I remember reading The Economist. I'll, I'll confess, I used to read that thing, and uh, I stopped for many moons ago for many reasons. Oh, but so
1: then, this is why you like Zion. I think he,
0: no, I think he's correct. I don't necessarily like him, but I think he's correct in a lot of what he says. That's different. But um, I'm just giving you shit. I was going to make a joke. <laughs>
1: I got on this rabbit hole real quick. I got on this yeah. rabbit hole when I was watching these videos of like peak midwit, like Reddit YouTube takes where these people were doing like political conversations and they were talking about how like, ah, uh, yes, like Ian Bremmer and like Paul Zahein. Oh, Bremmer. Some of my influences. I, I consider is not even
0: a something good presenter. something
1: of a geopolitical theorist. And uh, it, it's the fucking people who like read the, Economist or like foreign policy, like unironically, like they don't real they read it thinking that they're the economists especially so, but like even foreign <laughs> policy, it's yeah maybe there's something to gain from reading like what the Zog managers are, are saying, but in all honesty, like if you're not in the club and you're reading that stuff, it's it's a pretty bad look, and I feel like zihan is sort of an appeal. It's an he appeals at least from the perspective of his uh, popular-facing uh, persona, it's definitely an appeal along the same lines of, like, yes, peak, peak midwittery. And it's, you know, I feel like you're smarter than the people who actually have power or that you're involved in the conversation.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, all, all I was going to say was that the usage of the term... Uh, country men is by the person who's saying I'm trying to make this abstract, but I'll I'll just be more clear here. The use of the word like Americans from somebody who's American as opposed to saying us or we is kind of a, a globalist era thing. I think that's become more common as we've sort of interconnected and become more transnational. But that definitely was not a way people talked during the cold war or prior generations. It was sort of like us, you know, we're our country. Uh, They don't refer to their own country abstractly. And I think that's become much more common also with our generation too, as we become disillusioned, I think with the American project, but I'm sure that's, I'm not sure, but I, I would, I would speculate that that's also common, more common in Europe European countries. It's probably not true in China um, and certain other countries, but I don't think, um, I don't think that trend is our friend per se. If you're a nationalist, it's it's become very internationalist, but maybe we can end or uh, if you guys have anything else, but just maybe with, end with the sort of notion that he, Zion does admit or sort of speculate or concede, however you want to look at it that the era of globalization is coming to an end and this sort of regionalism perhaps is coming to replace it. And he he does say that America is well poised to take advantage of that for mainly demographic, geographic, and raw materials and energy in particular uh, reasons. Uh, Whereas China and Russia... Although they do have raw materials, they don't have the demographics or geography really uh, from a military standpoint or a climate agricultural standpoint to really prosper. Uh, China has geographic limitations in terms of its access to the ocean and the supply chain of energy and their demographics are bad. Um, He sees other countries like India doing pretty well because of their closeness to the Middle East energy and also their demographics and potential for, um, I don't know, just industrializing or something like that. But, um, what do you guys think about the future and the regionalism? I think that he's, he's sort of forecasting.
4: Well, I, uh, I feel like I've kind of spoken my mind about all of that throughout the, the course of the show. I ultimately, I've used Zihan. Uh, much more favorably than, than Bremer or people like that who, who are just
0: uh, truly. He's insufferable.
4: Unremarkable uh, freaks. Yeah. I mean, Bremer and those ilk are, are definitely. They fit the bill from that old Taleb moniker of or like uh, IYI, intellectual yet idiot. <laughs> Ian, Ian <laughs> Bremer exactly is a right. moron. He, he's, he's actually stupid and he's he he you know he's a guy that is only where he is purely through like
0: because his theater. publisher and his connections get him get him spots on the on yeah, the, the tonight yeah. show i mean like that guy yeah. is is such a lightweight his yeah. books are, are vapid. His, At vapid his, with his Zion, you can are,
4: tell yeah. he can like hold his own if you got in
0: an argument with sure. him sure He's also—he's also fairly charismatic, which Bremer is not. He, he's I,
4: charismatic, and yeah. he—he's—he's not—he's not some like weird, impish you know, goblin Jew. So he has that going for him. You, you know, it. Unlike Friedman, which is the the Stratfor guy, Bremer, some of these other creatures, um, Zaihan can at least present to you a cohesive the- thesis can take into account geology, industry, demographics, history. Is he maybe not well-versed in many of those subjects? Does he kind of simplify them a bit? Yes. But at least he tries. He makes an effort. Um, it is reasonably intelligent. Is it horribly one-sided? Um, is it a little juvenile sometimes? Yeah. Uh, But who amongst us is not one-sided and juvenile, I guess, uh, from time to time? So, I also don't take him very seriously, because I regard him and what he's doing out on his public-facing life as, you know, um, like airport, paperback, tier. It's smart. It's witty. It really catches your attention. um, Makes you think a little. And then that's it. As a businessman, he's clearly a very a talented businessman. Uh, you know, sort of putting in minimal amount of work to make lots of money off of books and podcasts and so forth. Um, and uh, I, I would always be very curious to see one of his or multiple maybe um, white papers that he delivers to clients. I would actually want to see one of these private intelligence reports. Because it would clarify so much that, you know, perhaps this is all a grift. Stratfor, his company, all these companies, they're all just a huge grift. Or maybe they actually are delivering real actionable intelligence that is very interesting and useful, um, and it's it's just locked behind monetary uh, gates. Uh, it, it, you know, if there's ever a, a white paper of his that leaks or something, I would be more than happy to sit down and read it just to see what level of of pragmatic and practical quality uh, he probably imbues into his work.
0: Nick, final thoughts?
1: Yeah, I I, I agree with that assessment. I th- I think that just on last words on Zihan and I'll say a few things about your main question, Adam, but. Yeah, I think it's kind of like it's it's for the goyim. Like these books, like the book I read was definitely like it was goy feed, uh, and I think that he makes a, a lot of these public statements that he makes that are sort of deliberately controversial. I think that is a something that is a business. That's from a businessman perspective that he's doing that because that gets the attention. If you're saying that kind of thing to an audience o- you know, it's filmed and everything, you're saying it to an audience where there's a couple there's people in that room with some real money and real power. They may grab you and afterwards and be like, can you elaborate on that, please? You know, you get their attention and, you, you know, this is something that could talking about, like, you know, pretty contrarian takes uh, when it comes to China, for example, is the most in your face. It's like he claims that China will cease to exist as a country within the next like I think by twenty fifty is what he says. Some pretty outrageous stuff. And so I, I think that's kinda I, I do think it's a it's a bit that he's doing as far as when he's saying things that are controversial. It's 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 probably part of his pitch and what he says to the you know the extent that is doing the public airport stuff. Yeah, I think you can read between the lines and see some. It suggests it's kind of interesting that maybe maybe the optimism is gone. I mean, this this is a far cry from Fukuyama as far as the attitude of a like public court intellectual being a lot more pessimistic, openly pessimistic than the you know one thousand years of liberalism and you know globalism forever. Uh, we've, you know, the total Whig conception that we've moved past the old conflicts, uh, the old constraints are now gone and we're, we're in a brave new world and blah, 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 blah. It's, it's interesting that someone as pub, is publicly bucking that trend of what the Zogs Court intellectuals have been saying for the Cold War, and most importantly, the immediate aftermath of the Cold War, where it was all it was all going to be rosy. But I do think that has a lot to do with what's happening in the East. I mean, that was the the big question is like, how do we integrate Asia, post communist Asia, into this into this new world order? And it apparently hasn't been going very well. Uh, as for like globalization and the the future, I I, I don't know, I. I don't I don't really buy into the whole like globalism versus nationalism dichotomy. I think that I mean, my ideal world or arrangement would be maybe globalist in a certain sense. I think that it's when you think about these kind of topics and especially consider something like how well America is situated in terms of just from a the North American continent from a geographical point of view and resources, it just makes it all the more tragic that all this was marshaled against Europe and against, against the race. And it's been distorted by these alien elements. And we're now trying to, you know, pick up and survive from the damage that has been done to generations. And it really makes you consider what it would be like if we didn't have these problems to deal with and we could focus on other types of problems and other, be able to actually plan for the future, which is something we can't do. You can't plan for the future, especially on a long time horizon when you're under alien occupation and uh, an oppressive government. So I don't know. I, I think that a world order, or at least a united european world broadly speaking uh, would have been the goal and the idea that we're being faced by these kinds of problems while we're while we're in the situation we are is a recipe for pretty serious disaster i could imagine things going very badly and we've been on the show for years talking about the way that things could and probably will go very badly so i don't know I, I have no I have no prognostications or anything like that. I, I would just say that it would be nice if we had like our people actually thinking about these things rather and in a position to have some influence and act on them rather than uh, bought and paid for mercenaries of Zog.
4: Yeah, I mean it is a shame that the only you know, you have to come to um... Uh, obscure blogs and uh private groups on the internet to you know kind of get this level of analysis or or you know very kind of hidden podcasts like ours at this point to even talk about these subjects uh, you have to do a lot of work on your own and try and find the very few people that are out there that can have like meaningful discussions with on these these topics uh yeah, it, it, yeah, it's a huge shame, I you're saying, Nick, that uh, we don't have a lot of people out there uh, that, that can provide our worldview, or a, or a more cohesive worldview of, from, from any perspective at this point, I would take. Uh, you have to pick it up from bits and pieces all over the place. It, it, it's very tragic how sort of dumbed down a lot of the analysis has become. And as a consequence of that, you know, this is a, this is why I think the Zihan has become so popular recently, because people are yearning for more complex analysis, and this is the most charismatic guy that stepped up to the plate, that's been promoted, and as smart and of you know, straightforward as he is, um, I, I think this you know a lot of his work really leaves you wanting something far more serious. And consequential. Uh, and you know it's not really in his business interests, I would say to to deliver that.